Um, Eric Friedman is a professor and dean of the School of Media Arts at Columbia College Chicago. He's the author most recently of The Persistence of Code in Game Engine Culture, which um, I think it's 2020. Um, you uh, so that oh so it is out because he asked 22. Mm -hmm. um, and as well as Transient Images, Personal Media and Public Frameworks, 2011. He serves on the editorial board of the International Journal of Creative Media Research and the advisory board of the Communication and Media Studies Research Network. So I'm going to hand it off to Professor Friedman. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks. It's uh, thanks, Heather. It's great to be here. Um, I appreciate uh, being hosted uh, and to talk about uh, some new work. Uh, this is part but not part of my uh, my next or the book that I'm currently on deadline for, which is on artificial intelligence and playable media. Um, but it sort of fits between these spaces between the work that I was doing on uh, video game architecture architectures and artificial intelligence. Um, I must say that um, the some of this was written or conceived of in my head with a particular type of audience. So if, uh, I don't know the, the context uh, of the graduate student body. So how much you know and don't know. So some of this may be too rudimentary, some of it may be too advanced, but sort of let me know when we get to that sort of point of the uh, sort of conversation, if, I've, if, if I need to clarify anything that I've spoken about. I'm gonna share my screen because I've got some uh, things for us to look at uh, along the way. Um, and I will share my sound as well. Go and I hope you can all see that and hear. There's nothing to hear yet, but you can all see that. So um, I'm going to be talking about um, the role that uh, the influence of video game technologies have had on both game and non-game media, um, and their design and development environments and runtime components uh, are uh, software systems that are known as game engines, and they've promoted a wide range of uses for real-time 3D visualization uh, that extend far beyond the field of video game development. Um, the software systems that drive video games have provided a common framework for digital content creation across what were distinct, once distinct media verticals, film, television, even manufacturing and industrial fabrication, uh, architecture and urban planning, and other interactive media forms, including digital twins, any form that can leverage uh, photorealistic visual effects and program programmable software generated assets. So what we see is that game engines are influencing just about every aspect of, for example, the film and television production pipeline, uh, uh, including pre-visualization, um, advanced in-camera visual effects, all of, the, all of these things are complementing what was once the solitary purview of post-production. What we see in film and television production is more and more directors and cinematographers are working in tandem with digital imaging technicians. You know, popular TV programs like The Mandalorian, this crowd probably knows, uh, or Westworld, um, have leveraged game engine technologies throughout their respective production processes uh, to seamlessly integrate physical and virtual assets. Uh, and both series have used elaborate filmmaking techniques to map and capture virtual settings rendered in real time across custom-built uh, LED walls while recording live performers. Um, and while game engines are being used across media forms, they were built as development tools for interactive digital content creation 
and really as code frameworks to formally define the field of play, meaning the game environment and its assets, as well as the executable functions, meaning what happens during gameplay uh, you know, throughout video games. They're the building blocks for uh, efficient real-time visualization, uh, and their programming is continuing to influence a broader and broader swath of visual culture. This is why I think it's important to talk about these structures. Uh, video game engines you know, have a lot to do with powering our visual futures. You know, as data and visuality continue to converge, software development companies that include uh, Unity Technologies and Epic Games, the latter of which I'll focus on today, are rapidly iterating their products to tackle new marketplaces. And they have plans, in fact, to colonize the metaverse. Uh, many of the images that we consume and interact with are really artfully crafted engineered media borne by these environments or these ecosystems of hardware, software, and programming. Uh, so in this um, reading, what I wanna do is you know, examine a tool that's fairly new uh, to the arsenal of video game developer Epic Games, and that's the MetaHuman Creator. Uh, the MetaHuman Creator, which is part of Epic's proprietary Unreal Engine, was revealed in February 2021 and subsequently released in April of the same year through the developer's early access program. The application, which is free, features a, an accessible user interface, and it allows game developers and 3D content creators to quickly build high-fidelity digital humans. And I'll just play their promo video so you have a sense of sort of how this tool works and what they're pitching. I could be one of many. Je pourrais être architecte. Ou guide. un artista. You create the narrative. I am metahuman. So the questions that I'm posing in my analysis that I'm not necessarily looking to answer today, but are the MetaHuman creator and similar uh, simplified building tools democratizing the field of digital content creation, which is sort of what Epic is pitching, you know, in this easy access, uh, familiar user interface? Um, are they also fostering more diverse representations and narratives? And are they supporting the free play of identity and playable media? So these tools, which include the entire Unreal Engine suite, you know, shape visual culture by translating it into a data set that can be manipulated by an algorithm. And what we have is digital content developers can transform visual artifacts, whether they be environments or objects and characters, 
in real time with simple user interface controls, such as draggable assets and variable or numeric sliders. And these tools represent a way of seeing and knowing the world and the representations they produce are part of these hermetically sealed and privately held encoding processes that include a company's original data, its application programming, its proprietary build environment and its interface. So for me, software and platform studies as critical approaches to the theories and practices of computing might help us unpack both the promise and the perils of Epic's a sophisticated character generator. Uh, the meta-human creator is, after all, it's a data-driven software system. It's an analytical engine. It's an integrated system of calculation and design, and it can sculpt and transform its source data and streamline this production process of digital humans. Um, for those of you who are not familiar how this system works, the meta-human creator, it's a cloud-streamed uh, web-based application that lets content developers create these high fidelity digital characters without really being steeped in the technical processes of things like character generation, uh, rigging, animation, and other in-engine real-time functionality. It provides a, a truly rapid method for developing 3D character models that can be animated with a variety of other programs like Autodesk Maya. And it draws from, as its foundation, a library of scans of real people and then allows 3D content developers to quickly create these unique photorealistic, fully rigged digital humans by mixing together different parts of real people while changing each character's facial textures and geometries uh, and simultaneously updating the underlying rig. So it, it holds on to the actual mechanics of the underlying rig. Uh, and the library as it stands now includes a number of prefabricated metahuman presets that represent the generalized and rather soft contours of race, ethnicity, you know, gender diversity, and a broad spectrum of individualized skin tones, textures, physiognomies, and style types. Uh, and the tool allows visual artists to really rapidly and seamlessly, as you saw in that clip, manipulate a character's facial features, adjust things like skin complexion, select from a range of preset body types and styles, and then each finished character can be exported, again, fully rigged, meaning fully functional, movable, and ready to animate within Epic's Unreal Engine. And that's part of their uh, licensing, licensing agreement to utilize these characters within the Unreal Engine. So from a technical standpoint, the process collapses more traditional scanning to rig development pipelines and wraps the creative process in a very familiar user interface really facilitate the design process for those Unreal, those who are developing inside the Unreal Engine. And for that reason, it, it really promises to advance the field of virtual production for games and other immersive experience, experiences and fields that draw from these high fidelity and responsibly, responsibly animated virtual assets and digital doubles. I have this slide on the screen because I think the tool also animates some of the cultural politics of the face generating algorithm that was vividly illustrated on this cover of Time Magazine back in 1993, uh, which was a composite of the new face of America created from a computer generated mix of individuals from several racial and ethnic groups. In this particularly you know, seamless synthesis designed to illustrate how immigrants are shaping the United States in a multicultural society really belies the work involved you know, conceals the, poli the policy decisions, you know, conceals the socioeconomic divides uh, and conceals the myriad forces of disenfranchisement 
that impede such a very seamless vision of progress. So all of those sort of obstacles, barriers, boundaries, mar you know, margins are obscured by sort of the fascination with what we can do on the sur with surface algorithms. I'd say metahuman creation also shares an awkward legacy in its dependence on deeply multi-layered algorithmic manipulation with visual trickery and disinformation, which is an unfortunate byproduct of, of GANs, G-A-Ns, which are generative adversarial networks. And GANs are a type of machine learning that uses a pair of artificial intelligence algorithms in a large volume of data to try and accurately replicate real world image patterns until the fakes are indistinguishable from the originals. One of the results of advanced GAN research is the ability to develop unique human faces that can pass for real people. And collectively, these systems are rendering visual culture from a perspective that as it advances is actually less and less determined by human intervention, although it was originally conceived and developed from within an anthropomorphic anthropocentric design perspective and is inherently prone to humanistic bias. Um, these representations, again, are not simply happening within their own platforms, but they are impacting the visual grammar, the organizational labor, the technical structures, the industrial models of film, television, gaming related media forms. Um, for those of you who aren't familiar with how GANs work, it requires training, I said, two algorithms a generator and a discriminator. So in this process, you actually have AI competing against itself. The generator learns to create plausible data while the, the latter, the discriminator, learns to discriminate between the generator's fake data and real data until the process becomes almost um, uh, much more seamless, much more competent and capable of gener generating realistic images, voices, videos, any of you who have seen the fake Tom Cruise videos, you know, and suggests the goal of intelligence research may be twofold. How do we simulate intel human intelligence to such a degree that machines might replace human beings as part of the process and occupy their locations within an organization so we no longer need the real actor? Uh, and it's also about a representational framework or development pipeline that also sort of displaces human labor and allows machines to carry out these, these sort of design tasks. For those of you, I'll give you sort of a little background. In 2018, a team of uh, NVIDIA technology researchers proposed StyleGAN. And StyleGAN is a style-based generative architecture that is tasked with analyzing and synthesizing existing facial image data to produce these novel photorealistic images. I'll give you a sort of brief sort of clip here so you understand how these style GANs actually work with human faces.
I'm going to get too technical, so I'll stop it there. Um, uh, but uh, for those of you who may not actually have looked at the NVIDIA's research, um, this style GAN, this technology that was being developed by NVIDIA, uh, became the sort of uh, um, architecture for um, what uh, software engineer Philip Wang used in 2019. Uh, he used because the style GAN is an open source generator. So the same technology developed by NVIDIA is used in an open source model uh, by uh, Philip Wang to create this person does not exist. Uh, and this is just a sampling of images from this person does not exist. Uh, for those of you who haven't checked out the website, uh, this person does not exist is a website that conjures its fake portraits from existing image data and produces new human faces every time that you refresh the page. So the style GAN is operating in the background every time you hit click refresh, a new face of a fake person will be generated. Um, uh, and this data-driven image modeling, this is just sort of seven selective faces from, from uh, this person does not exist. This data-driven image modeling is based on always a degree of normalization. That's how the algorithm works. How do we train the algorithm on existing data sets and output the information in ways that match stylistic social conventions and expectations. So the goal of the system are always sort of normalizing to, you know, um, to create an unsupervised image to image translation and the production of a novel image that conforms to common facial shapes and common facial features. So you'll never get anything, you know, unbelievable or radicalized, you know, as a result of this process. That's sort of the modeling at work. So the style GAN in every case operates within and produces what we would conceive as acceptable structures. And while it's a fascinating visual tool, it carries with it, as I'm sure you sense, much starker undercurrents. Um, AI tools are being deployed within, institu within institutions that are historically marked by systemic dis uh, discrimination, you know, in housing, in the workplace, in the criminal justice system, our financial institutions, and bias is baked into the outcomes of what AI is constantly asked to do and predict. Um, the data used to train machine intelligence is often underrepresentative of people of color, of women, and of other marginalized groups. And those fault lines impact the design, development, implementation of uh, and outcomes of AI across a broad range of tech and tech and tech dependent industries, where it really becomes more difficult to extract what's happening meaning to extract the signaling processes embedded in the automated systems that are designed to create more efficient workflows and more realistic images. And while what I've shown you, including the MetaHuman creator doesn't really rely on AI per se and is instead focused on the physical aspects of character creation, these assets are primed for intelligence uses as non-player characters driven by AI subsystems or as intelligent agents in a wider array of video game and game adjacent environments. So since its launch, the MetaHuman creator has been successfully coupled with an AI voice actor platform developed by Replica Studios that enables developers to create AI characters that look and sound human, where we have voice actors training the AI how to perform. So we have this sort of whole hermetic system about how characters look and what they sound like that is all has a human component as its base, but again, those sort of uh, those systems are then concealed in the actual ongoing output, which where AI slowly but surely takes over the performative dimension of character. 
And while it's a unique enterprise, I believe the human, the metahuman creator carries the cultural weight of all of these other simulation systems, intelligent or not, that approximate human subjects. Um, Again, as I said, metahuman creator is a fluid process that really shortens the timeline to produce its human character assets. Uh, and it streamlines the overall development pipeline. So there's a, there's a labor implication here as well. Um, the people who use or work with metahuman creator are never given direct access to the primary scan library in its data. So there is an existing library of, of original human scans, but instead what you're asked to do is work with and select from a cast of metahuman preset characters that are artifacts of that library and composite representations of its raw data. So reading the tool from a sort of critical vantage point rather than a purely industrial vantage point in this sort of speedy transformation of character rigs and other non-binary attributes, the, this ability to blend between characters highlights what I believe is the sort of potential queerness or openness of data Yet most commercial demonstrations of this tool speed through all of these mutable subjects, ultimately to land on a predictable end result, a fixed result. So a dynamic creative process ultimately has to yield to some sort of stasis to the construction of a functional and fixed character build of a certain physiognomic type. So the, the image library, which is a really complex data set, has to con constantly behave in plausible ways and according to a number of mark constraints to produce these anatomically believable outputs. And while code may be fluid and sort of not have any anatomical fixity, these things always wind up uh, becoming much more constricted if our goal, if our intent is to produce believable high quality digital characters. Um, all of the metahumans use an underlying skeleton asset. Um, so while they're Facial features may be unique, the, the, the features of you know, defined body, face, hair, and clothes. All of these are parented to a governing skeletal mesh, and those structures allow the external features of these characters to be purposefully animated and readily swapped. So these distinct bodies that are pulled from the library and blended together to make custom, custom assets you know, always remain functionally locked to an underlying mesh uh, so even the external skins of these characters can be readily swapped out. So this female character and another male character share may share the same underlying skeletal rig. So a process of animation retargeting enables animations to be reused between characters who have the same skeleton asset, even if they have different proportions or additional bones as, as long as they share the same bone hierarchy and use the same rig to pass animation data from one skeleton to another. So even the specificity of character type as gets, as gets locked into a model, you know, becomes swappable based on the skeletal asset that drives the motion of all of these characters in the same way. Um, some of the questions that you know, I, I sort of raised throughout my research is, you know, these metahumans are designed intelligently but they don't possess intelligence. They look real. I don't know. I don't really know if they are uncanny or not. I don't know if they truly evoke an emotional response. You know, their facial features, their geometries, their expressions, their movements are all plausible since they're tied to that underlying skeletal rig. But they would need another programming layer, another AI subsystem to really give them agency. 
to really make them semi-autonomous, contextually driven and motivated characters. But I think that's the prompt that's really posed by Epic Games in that commercial reveal video that asks us or commands us, you, know, you create the narrative. So these are sort of primed for sort of narrative appropriation. And while these assets are still in need of a narrative, I think we can still read them as meaningful traces of a particular industrial process, which is all about an ongoing push toward hyperrealism in commercial media that has created a visual economy that is now supported by an industrial apparatus that privileges how we master these tools of production and where the bodies and the politics are often cleaved in the design process. And there's an interesting sort of conversation among Unreal developers where they ask you know, each other like, who is your favorite metahuman character? And, and they, they choose based on you know, this sort of very sort of whimsical, like, um, like sort of sort of visual reading of, of these characters that they produce, which are really sort of sharply depoliticized, uh, you know, in, 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 in just in terms of a like, let's choose as they do in the, in, in the selection video around this character, let's choose this character or that character and let's sort of just mix them, to, mix them up together. So this, what I see is, you know, Epic's multi-ethnic, multi-racial, even transgender metahuman creator it's, it's from an Unreal or Epic Games perspective, really just a design tool, not a narrative engine. The transitions are simple and seamless uh, and the traces of non-binary and non-white identities are simply part of a larger color, par color palette of various ethnicities and genders in the database. So I think the metahuman creators really mastered cosmetic diversity and the rather quick fabrication of multiculturalism and it seems to suggest that technology can be colorblind and embrace a certain in-betweenness. Um, the rapid transitions that we see between subject positions is, is really a masterful visual spectacle that seems incompatible with any genuine concern for the difficulties of lived, lived experience uh, or you know, lived experience with difficult body boundaries. Although Epic's developers suggest that the quality and fidelity of its metahumans can create player empathy. So I think what we see in metahuman creation is a really feat or spectacle of bodily governance, of regulating flow, of regulating discrete bodies and the power and privilege associated with, with this particular tool is not simply about how humans are represented but who produces these representations and who owns these bodies at the end of the day. Um, because metahuman creation requires a certain degree of technical know-how as, as well as the requisite processing power, as well as the requisite network access uh, with the, and the, the necessary Unreal Engine supports to run these real-time renders. Um, and at the same time, if we step back a bit, we know that the MetaHuman creator and its Unreal Engine parent, meaning Epic Games, they sit within existing socioeconomic relations that guarantee the almost inequitable distribution of an access to technology. This application is based on and requires Epic's proprietary pixel streaming technology that can pull data from its central server and is part of the and is, is in part the product of the company's uh, acquisition of, of a Serbian-based company, uh, Three Lateral, which pulled the technology for crafting these virtual humans closer to the Unreal Engine by adding three laterals 
know, research on volumetric facial capture and facial rigging to Epic's portfolio. So what we see in Epic is a constant sort of acquisition cycle of what do we need? We need three lateral, we need to capitalize on volumetric facial capture, let's pull this company into our orbit. We need sort of stronger networking power or server power or data draws. So let's work with our pixel streaming technology. So it does indeed become this sort of real um, um, sort of hermetic sort of data-driven ecosystems. <clears throat> and as I, as I suggested, the metahuman presets or the series of characters that are based on 3D scans of real people, these were built from a data set that required a significant you know, uh, number of cameras, a significant number of processing power to create complete 3D models of real human faces. And in this case, three lateral provided the resources for Epic Games to accomplish this task. But we don't know who provided the raw materials that make up this sort of racial and ethnic and gender mix of the Unreal database. We don't know how precisely these individuals were arranged and transformed into these preset metahuman characters. Because the library that you are choosing from is one step removed, multiple steps removed from that initial sort of library scan of real human faces. These are synthesized to begin with and you are basing a model around pre-synthesized character sets. Um, so what we see, and this is sort of what, I, what, what you may uh, understand as being represented here, in this particular slide, end users choose one or more metahuman presets from the database of pre-made characters. This is simply a sampling of some of these pre-made characters from the um, Unreal Engine uh, database. So end, use, end users can choose one or more of these metahuman presets or character assets from this database. And again, there are at this point, a library of more than 50 named individuals. So all of these individuals organized alphabetically from Ada to Zen, they all are uniquely named. And you can then create your metahuman uh, by enabling the application's blend mode. So what you do is you can then choose uh, additional character presets and drag and drop these 3D portrait models into a concentric circle around the primary preset in this, what you see represented here is the application viewport. So in this case, there's one primary preset in the center, you know, three additional character presets on that are orbiting you know, in the concentric circle. And then using viewport, you can sort of choose your blend, you know, you know, and, and start to sort of move elements of all of these concentric characters into the primary character reset. Uh, and you can then map their facial features onto one another. And this is, again, always designed to produce plausible results from the database as it, as it outputs what are custom blends of digital, uh, digital indiv individuals. One other sort of interesting sort of element is once you get done constructing your, your fabricated sort of model is that, um, Unreal Engine's Live Link Face app allows developers to capture live facial performance with an iPhone or iPad and map that performance in real time to their metahuman characters. Uh, so th in this case, you see from Lucas Ridley, you know, uh, one of his tutorial, he is in the lower right-hand corner. The, um, the um, Live Link Face app is represented on his phone next to him. And in this case, what he's doing is he's capturing his facial performance to one of the uh, preset character, preset metahuman characters and animating it with his facial performance. Uh, so you can, this becomes sort of the ecosystem of preset character, 
uh, Unreal's Live Link Face app, uh, your ability to map your performance to your MetaHuman character. You can also link your MetaHuman character to other full body motion capture workflows. Uh, so you can actually you know, develop pose animations that cap capture based on sort of real time motion capture. And then these software ec ecosystems are compatible with other development tools like Maya and Motion Builder. So you can sort of do some replotting or fine tuning. And, and that's the sort of nature of this sort of metahuman sort of creation is it has to play well with other data ecosystems. At the same time, it has to be rendered and published inside Unreal Engine in order to comply with the company's um, uh, licensing agreement. Moreover, again, as I mentioned, Epic continues to foreground the value of all of its other services uh, that allow you to run this application uh, through a circuit of relations that includes not just what Three Lateral has given it, but also what Cubic Motion, another acquisition, gives it in terms of facial animation technologies. It has acquired a number of other complementary companies that include Twin Motion for its real-time architectural visualization software. Um, Epic recently acquired Quicksil for its, for its Megascan library of 2D and 3D gram photogrammetry assets. So what we have in the Epic arsenal is a consolidated robust suite of 3D content creation tools created in a, inside a hermetic data system that is both people and motion and environments and an object asset library, all of the elements are sort of blended together. And again, as I pointed out, so that we can start to see Epic Games as one of many parties looking to colonize the metaverse. Um, before I sort of wrap this up, I want to suggest that you know Epic, of course, is not alone in its pursuit of building the metaverse and populating it with human assets. Uh, People Sans People is Unity's open sourced uh, human-centric synthetic data generator. This is sort of a sampling from Unity technologies. This was released to the public just earlier this year. And what Unity provides, and those of you who work with Unity, Unity is also a, you know, an engine-based game developer who is using its engine-based tool in other environments and other build environments. What Unity provides with People Sans People is a simula are simulation ready 3D human assets that are coupled to a parameter parameterized lighting and camera system. Meaning you can take an asset, you can drop it inside any environment and it's, it, it's coupled to lighting and camera. So you're not gonna lose that sort of the fidelitous relationship between your character and environment. Uh, the 3D human models that we see here in People Sans People are all drawn from a subset of the, what's called the render people library. The reason we call it's called people sans people because it's anonymizing the data. So these may be based on real world scans of, of photo, photogrammetry scans of real people, but by anonymizing the data, these become sort of neutral objects that cannot be associated or reattached to any one individual. So the 3D human models that Unity is using are drawn from a subset of render people. And for those of you who have never shopped for pre-rendered people, uh, this is the render people library. Render people has its own 3D people library products that are built from 3D photogrammetry scans, which are sort of high resolution scans of more than in this case, 4,000 live models that can be inserted into a range of 3D visualization product projects. So again, in this case, you can purchase a model in the render people shop and you can drop it into any you know, sales environment 
any sort of interactive environment that, that you want. Again, these are based on sort of real models. Uh, so in the render people environment, you've got a sort of real actor who can act as a salesperson or a, or a host at your university campus on, on, a, on a virtual tour. You don't have to build that model and it can be synchronized with your environment. People sounds people, what it does is simply uh, thinks about sort of the ethics or, or data privacy by anonymizing the data from the render people models, modulating the appearances of its virtual people to create more customizable data sets. And then it also allows you to train the models to adapt to a specific, specified environment. So we can then generalize the model to that domain. So it can fit almost any domain. Um, as I close, I just want to say that sort of game engine, I think this is sort of an important beyond sort of the, although I focused on people, uh, game engines and their data infrastructures are really the building blocks for the metaverse. And developers like Epic and Unity are using their engines, their assets, their data holdings to claim territory. And as I pointed out, to buy up competing or complementary technology companies to really secure these hermetic world building systems. As I mentioned in, in 2019, they acquired Quixel. So they added this world atlas of high resolution 3D scans of environmental specimens, you know, surfaces, materials, objects, and vegetation. Uh, Unity in 2021 announced its plan to acquire Weta Digital and the, the company's you know, proprietary visual effects suite, stating its intent to unlock the potential of the metaverse. Uh, so what we find Unity and Epic both doing is, again, building these people models and then acquiring these robust asset libraries of urban and natural environments, of flora and fauna, of man-made objects, of materials, textures, and more to really have this sort of robust sort of architecture that is a fully fledged architecture. In my, from my own perspective, I, I turn to critical media studies beyond sort of studies of production because I think at the end of the day, we need to interrogate the formal and structural properties of these texts and at some level, we need to understand the production process. And that I hope I've given you sort of some insight into what, what happens here. This is the sort of animation retargeting that I've talked about. So this particular metahuman character can be mapped to almost any, and any other metahuman character can be uh, sort of retargeted to the same animation rig, the universality of type. But I think it's important to ask whether a tool that can produce multicultural subjects is really empowered to produce substantive social change and create counter narratives that challenge existing racial and ethnic, and ethnic inequities. I think these questions are, are pressing in this closed circuit of relations because human assets are being fabricated from the same identical algorithmic architecture as their virtual worlds. They're being constructed from and operating within the same governing data structures. And as I said, you know, the promotional materials that surround the release of Epic's MetaHuman Creator focus on, in on what characters look like and how plausible they are rather than what they're doing or what they're being asked to do. And these representations always lack context. Uh, but as the engine-driven tr traces of the natural world continue to move toward greater fidelity and to a greater alignment between you know, physio physiognomic and mechanical systems, the power of Epic's tool is not simply what it does, but how it does it. The user interface is designed as a direct manipulation tool where end users can monitor their design choices in real time, visualize the various sort of character deformations, you know, as they move around these facial markers and the, the sliders, 
but they don't really have access to what's happening you know, you know, beneath the surface here. So the question is, is, is the metahuman creator an engine for diversity? Is it simply a spectacle of control? Uh, and where video game technologies have extended their algorithmic influence into the machinery of a much broader media and information economy. And they've succeeded by holding on to the human, humanistic attachments of these algorithms that make their software like so welcome and familiar to many developers and, and designers who are struggling with these problems and to get their products running. So by examining these software systems and their technologies that undergird the representation, I think we can begin to understand the cultural power of code as it gets written into these data architectures. And then in the case of MetaHuman Creator, you know, we have to understand that software is both a matter of engineering what's happening in the background, but also language, you know, it has to be legible. It has to follow certain scripted rules. It has to organize, it has to communicate. It has to you know, represent information in ways that make sense. It has to shape all of its image data into a fixed set of material relations that follow the rules of successful game production or interactive media production. These creations have to make sense. The bodies have to work. They have to perform without failure. Uh, and uh, you know they have to create really responsive bodies. So there's a broader lesson here for me in shifting our attention to both the, the deeper architectures of game design and development, but also thinking about what's happening at the image level as well. There's a, we have to unpack the privilege that comes with the ability to really engage in this machine-based identity surfing. Um, we have to always continue to unpack, to understand that these hygienic or functional, understandable distillations of the material world you know, are based on sort of an underlying information architecture. And there are other scholars and critics that you might be familiar with that have sort of you know, approached this, you know, Jennifer Malkowski and Treya Andrea Russworm in their study of game representation talk about, we don't wanna simply pay attention to code analysis because if we do that, you know, we are thinking that programming is purely technical and not particularly ideological. And at the same time, game representation is always tethered to software and harder. So we need to, you know, we need to develop and expand our approach to media studies, which you may already be doing, and try to situate computation and representation side by side and understand their interrelated you know, disciplinary histories and practices. Understand that digital media have an outer layer and an inner layer, if, if you wanna think of it that way, that representations are governed by code and they are also are the provenance of both you know, media history and history of computing. So that's what I that's what I see going on here in terms of you know the question that we have to always remind ourselves is like what is the level of narrative possibility? Are these systems simply amplifying existing hierarchies of knowledge and power? Uh, our work with metahumans from a design perspective is commonly limited to the surface level of interventions with the user interface, but as a countermeasure, I believe when you have to think about how these proprietary software environments are built. We need to strive for deeper computational literacy. And that's if we want to figure out the, the design biases of these imaging systems and consider how they are operating in and regulating the world at large. With that, I will sort of pause uh, and hope um, you have some sort of response or some input, some questions, or some parallel investigations that you're all uh, involved with. So thank you.
Thank you so much, Eric. That was really, really interesting. Um, I wanted to ask a, a, a quick question. That last um, simulation we were seeing over and over again of the sort of robot human and the human human, and they're they're the same, right? And their hands are empty, but they're it's simulating like holding weapons, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> just like without the weapon being there. Um, so I just want to make sure that was what was really happening. It struck me as very strange, right? And it points to like, well, what are we going to do with these responsive bodies that don't function or that, or that always function correctly, right? And it's going to be playing games with guns. And I, I'm not a gaming person at all, so I don't know like the whole range of Epic's games. Um, but are there different, more um, unusual things that these bodies are designed to do? Um, are there when, when you talked about like responsive bodies that don't fail i immediately thought of like pornographic applications mm -hmm. of simulated bodies and at that point it occurred to me like oh yeah this really limited kinds of body creation would really have a negative impact if it was used in a pornographic context where mm -hmm. like a range of body types would be possibly like really kind of all over the place, right? As opposed to really tightly constricted in what you showed. So it's just kind of a little prompt that might uh, get you going on a, on a few additional thoughts. Yeah, because you know, the, the rigs are, there is a tension between sort of the, 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 the marketing and the design orientation of the, of the product. So what you're rightly noting is those sort of uh, epic games or unreal developers who are because what I showed you is pulled straight from the that, that last shot, that last animated loop is pulled from the Unreal documentation. So there's this tension between like the Unreal documentation that shows you the traditional, there are a couple poses blended together. The assumption is a, a particular type of action-based gameplay, you know, whether it's a whether it's a third-person shooter, there's a certain type of action orientation written into the documentation that accompanies that's that's peppered throughout sort of what Unreal is proposing. Uh, but you are correct in noting the, the open narrative prompt is as long as there's a rig, these characters can be made to perform in any way. The limitation there is um, back to the Unreal Engine architecture. If they have to be sort of published within Unreal, uh, what are the limiting contours of the Unreal Engine that allow or disallow certain um, um, bodily performances? Thank you. Um, I see Shrishti has her hand up. Hi, Eric. Thank you so much for being here. Um, my name is Shrishti. I'm a grad student here, and I've actually been writing my thesis on virtual production for the last two years. So I've been tracking a lot of what you're talking about. And I'm hoping that my question might be able to like mitigate some of the, the blocks that I, I'm not able to understand in your argument. You've, you've, you've sort of noted a couple of different aspects, right? Narrative possibility, embeddedness in code, propriety information, literacy, marketing. These are all very different studies and angles to the same issues of power. So what exactly are you arguing? Because there are multiple layers to the arguments of power within that. So maybe that question will help mitigate my, my hesitation to respond. Thank you. Uh, for me, it flows from, I think the, the overarching, um, I think all of these are connected together. Um, for me, it's, it's about the, it is about this, um, it's about a data ecosystem. So it's, it's, so the big picture is who owns and controls 
data writ large. So it used, and that's sort of the, it is a fascinating field because you know, you know, being immersed as you are in studying virtual production, which is constantly evolving, um, it, it seems at first the space, my initial argument used to be around game engine technology is, is that um, the space for radical possibility closes as you move through the development pipeline. And that's typically the logic of, 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 of game development. Like you have this rich and open engine-based architecture that is just a, a software framework that, that again gets connected to a, to a designer that gets connected to a story. So the, the radical possibility shuts down at every stage of the development pipeline. So software frameworks are open, they get formalized as an engine, they get attached to a particular intellectual property and that then pushes them within a particular genre that then makes them tell a particular story around. So it was closing down of a queer or expressive possibility uh, in ways that if you were just to take the Unity engine and use it as an independent developer, that possibility is still there. Although sort of the question becomes as these, as Unity and Epic no, are no longer simply in the business of producing an engine and you know, Crytek produced an engine, Unity produces an engine, Epic produces an engine, uh, Rockstar Games produces an engine. As they start to acquire you know, in this case, an epic game, you know, Quicksell and, you know, the three lateral, as you as an independent developer um, or artist, you know, start to look outward for other types of influences or assets or libraries or data flows that may make your object act differently. You, what you find is those things are now shared within the same ecosystem. So it, it's not simply, oh, well, I have to buy everything from Unreal. It is uh, as well, Unreal starts to shape what those products can do. So while Three Lateral used to be an independent Serbian-based company that could, like, who knows what we might do with 3D scanning. Well, now that is not just acquired by Unreal, but asked to do and not do certain things as part of the sort of Epic Games mission statement. And that's sort of the, so you're right, it is, it's a complexity because there's that, but then there's like, well, what is the space for expressive possibility when documentation, and I, you know, I study some documentation that tells users, that explains like, okay, as an independent developer, what should I do with this tool? Well, you start by reading through documentation that then pushes down a particular pathway that says, click here, then click there. So the, the, the element of exploration starts to shut down in documentation, in marketing, and I think all of these things it's it's hard. You're right. It's hard to stitch these together because they they you run up against different um, critical assumptions driven by different material histories. You have different bodies of, but I think we have an obligation to try to start to stitch some of these things together. Uh, and that's mm -hmm. it's interesting the field of virtual production, like you know, because Mandalorian and Westworld are working with Unreal, so mm -hmm. you may have. A, a vision or a storyteller or a filmmaker um, who is working with an intellectual property and, and that now has the unreal technician on set who can then mm -hmm. say, we can do this, but not this. So you start to determine possibility in virtual production, not based on, in some instances, what Lucas wants to do, but in other instances, what the pairing with Unreal and Epic Games suggests the technology can or should or will do um, based on, you know, a history of conventional use.
I don't know if that mm-hmm. cuts any closer, but it is a <laughs> extremely complicated landscape as more yeah. and more of the the sort of the underlying data sets get um, um, conformed in ways that we simply don't see. Okay, so I just wonder though how it, it's different to pre-existing, you know, Maya workflows where there were also mm-hmm. artifacts that said do A, B, C, and D. I mean, any deployment of technology involves an authority over the mm-hmm. workflow. That's any, that's mm-hmm. not, that's even Zoom technologies, right? Mm-hmm. Click, click the mute button when you don't want to be heard like that. So how are you distinguishing this as any, any different, I guess is my question. They're similar in terms of their underlying architecture, as you point out, yes, Zoomed in my, my first work, work my first you know, book on transient images was about like online memorial archives. So how does the sort of architecture of a 9-11 memorial where, or a, a virtual sort of a remembrance of, uh, online where all of your personal images get conformed to a particular template. Like that's sort of the, the first iteration of this process of normalizing data according to these pre-built architectures. I'd say the difference here, so Zoom and Facebook, you know, and match.com, like online dating sites, all conform information. And we can see that sort of ideological imperative, meaning there's a pre-built architecture that, that we're all asked to work within. And, you know, but we see, but we understand that negotiation at work. I'd say for me, it's it's this object of, of, of authenticity or verisimilitude um, that starts to conceal what's happening because it's one thing to have it in an interface culture where we understand the distinction or see the radical distinction between ourselves and the representation on screen. As those divides start to break down in the case of uh, photogrammetry, in the case of, of, um, of um, uh, metahumans, it becomes harder and harder to see the coding layer uh, um, than it might be in terms of like, what are my, cho- like these become much more comfortable pre-built assets. Um, and we start to, maybe not as scholars, but I think more and more deliberately, the, the, the architecture becomes so complex that we start to move to default mechanisms that are handed to us. And I think, and especially within the realm of story, that becomes a much more dangerous arc, I think, of simplification. Um, I think that, uh, there we go, Tomas, yes. Yeah, thank you. And thank you for a fantastic talk. And I'm interested in, in your provocation that, you know, these algorithmic bodies are anatomically coded and that this restricts, you know, some fluidity or queerness of some transmissions of code. But I wonder if, you know, if humans are coded, right? We have DNA, our, our anatomic possibilities are not infinite. So I wonder if the problem here is the, is the reference on humans that, and, 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 and if that is the real, real like challenge here. What are you sort of uh, what are you postulating there? Well, my, my question is if if mm-hmm. if if there is a possibility of mm-hmm. designing a replication of a human that is mm-hmm. not uh, anatomically coded and restricted, right? Given that humans are restricted by a code which is DNA, right? We are, you know, mm-hmm. the, we don't have infinite possibilities. Our our physical bodies cannot be, you know, you know there's a limit in the queerness of our physical bodies. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if then if the problem that we are talking could be summed up as, you know, the problem is that the, the humanity is being replicated and the physical body has limitations, right? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, and it is this level of I think what you're what you're suggesting too is this is the so it's the level of remediations that we're talking about. If we have this complication within the body itself, and then the body becomes I, I think it is this the photogrammetry library, the live scanning of the body suggests that you can capture the we start to move away from the we're capturing the materiality of the body, but not its essence of the body. So so we start we start from with the scanning library to work from the surface of the body. So it, it's it's multiple levels of radical erasure. The live so the library is built on surface scans, which which efface that sort of what you're talking about that essential problem. And then the metahuman creator, all these three D building tools start to work from that sort of um, sort of secondary level. So it, it's it's to try to get back to that. The, the question then becomes, do, does narrative where that possibility gets sort of re, reinterpreted or re-encoded? Does an agency always get lost in terms of how these bodies are constructed, but return somehow in terms of what they do and say that might complicate how they're built? But is there, do you see a conflict there then? Do you, do, do you feel that, I mean, I, I don't want to like mm -hmm. translate the conversation too much, but do you think that that there is a possibility to transcend that that material aspect of humanity that this technology is somehow restricting, would that be a a correct way to put it? Um, do I think the technology can actually is the technology inherently a closed circuit of relations that cannot get us to a a more transcendent? Is that what you're suggesting? Yeah, yeah, I would say that. I wonder. I, I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, is there and now you're asking sort of an sort of an alternative sort of language like is there an expressive possibility that simply is that potentiality out there and not realized like uh, and i think that's a it's a good prompt um i think it's it's antithetical to the work that good that um engine-based design ultimately does i think this is the the role of artificial intelligence too is always this sort of simulation of uh, intelligent behavior means it has to be logical behavior. That there is no sort of uh, space for for illogic or uh, incorrect or um, or failure. So I'd say it's it's the nature of these elements that they they can may not ever be able to push to that end. Thank you. Um, we have a question from Paul, and then we have one from uh, Laurel Carney that's in the uh, chat. Box. So maybe we could uh, start with Paul. Sure. Uh, thank you for the talk. There's so many interesting directions this can go in. Uh, I was, wanted to ask more about the push for hyperrealism and sort of the a familiar and legible form of hyperrealism that really came out strongly in, in the way these interfaces are designed. I work on I've been looking at 3D media production in Japan, where it's often the, the fixation on realism seems to be a very sort of American thing. It's not like we could be making anime characters instead, right? Why do we need to do this? So I'm curious what, what you see is driving that. Is it more sort of with the history of Uncanny Valley discourse and trying to stay well away from that by not letting you actually get there with the interface? Or is it more that that's clearly where the, the big money is to be able to make completely sort of plausible, realistic characters as opposed to something that's maybe a little, a little more unfamiliar to people, but what, what, is, what is driving the need to keep it sort of safely hyper-realistic? Um, that, that's, that's an interesting question. And, and I, you know, I, 
at some level, even in terms of the, from my perspective, I think it's the it's the origin story of these technologies, and sort of the in the larger the largest quest of AI development in general, and, and it's sort of uh, interrelationship with um, with either game forms or game technologies. You know, AI. You know, games are a testing ground for AI, so they ground it in terms of particular sort of questions. I think the fact that Epic and Unreal are grounded in game space. Uh, is largely, and I say this with an understanding that even from sort of Japan, if we talk about Capcom, you know, um, Capcom has always, at least in its video game space, has has pushed um, in its engine development um, towards greater and greater hyperrealism. So I think I think it's the legacy of where these tools, in what industries they're coming out of, uh, is orienting orienting them to a certain sort of I think that's where the push is coming from. So I think there is a particular bias within these in, within these particular game industries that is shaping that that is pushing the technology or attaching that technology to that sort of uh, visual bias um, um, that is simply getting replicated in in and aligning them with other media other entertainment industries. So you're right. There is the possibility in all of these engines in working in a two D way. Uh, but that seems to be, be obfuscated by now the attachment of, I think it, it's the level of commerce of Unity or Epic Games and Unity to other, other parts of the entertainment complex that are sort of prioritizing certain types of project models. I think it'd be an interesting test case in terms of the metaverse, in terms of what is satisfying and not satisfying in terms of a, like what's the visual logic of the, what's the visual vocabulary of the metaverse I think it will be an interesting push to see if that becomes more and more aligned with what we're seeing in the photogrammetry of the metahuman creator, or whether it still remains this sort of this sort of othered space. Uh, um, um, and, and without getting too far off, I think sort of the fact that sort of Fortnite and Epic Games have investments in that in that sort of material direction. I think there's going to be a strong push in terms of Epic controlling the visual vocabulary of what happens in those other spaces. But I think that's where it stems from. It's these, the origin stories of these, of these uh, tech companies. Um, thank you, Eric. From Laurel, we have this question. I'm gonna read it aloud. Sorry for the technologically rudimentary question, but I'm curious about the specific mechanisms of an algorithm determining a quote, plausible face. Do you have any information about how this plausibility is specifically codified and at what point in the process? Is it based on humans manually reviewing edge cases? Is there a possibility for users to push against or override that plausibility within the metahuman creator as released? Or is it too late by the time the data set reaches the user's hands? That's an excellent question. And I can sort of radically simplify that um, be, uh, by first saying that the um, it is done by initially with, with the initial photogrammetry scan. So it's based on existing um, human physiognomy that gets sort of captured. So there's the original scan library that has some element of correction in terms of sort of humans reading through and, um, you know, reviewing those edge cases to create the at, at, within in the creation of the initial library and then once those edge cases are corrected 
then the AI learning model takes over and then can replicate those edge cases and eradicate those edge cases over and over and over again. So there's the initial human intervention that sets up the machine learning model that then identifies the edge cases and that can slowly but surely make sure they get filtered out. If you look at the, the, the all of the SILGAN, which is I think a good place to look at this, uh, all of the documentation is on the GitHub website. So if you go to this person does not exist and click through, you can ultimately find the, uh, the uh, coding database on the NVIDIA StyleGAN site. It's all open source. The possibility to push against or override that plausibility, it becomes non-existent in the MetaHuman creator. And they talk openly about this is that you, you can't create an odd result. It will always, there are, they have set the sliders, they have set the parameters in ways that do not allow you to push too far or, or to push the limits of plausibility. Um, so the, the functional possibility, it is in fact too late by the time the data set reaches the user's hands in the case of the MetaHuman creator. Um, now what you, can see is some people exporting, this is back to the Maya, some people then export these things, these assets into Maya where you can do a bit more subtle manipulation. So there's a way of, of re regaining some agency over your character by pushing it into Maya. And I mean, in terms of plausibility, like is, is what's defined as plausible, um, is uh, it plausible that someone uh, might be fat? Is it plausible that someone might have a hair lip or, you know, any kind of any range of, of, of disability? Because their idea of what's plausible seems like a certain very normative idea of mm -hmm. obvious, right? Of a, a certain kind of perfect body that is, mm -hmm. you know, with a certain body mass index and so on. And just curious, you know, with the sliders, is there any possibility for someone, you know, who has a limp, for example? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, they have different um, um, body types. They have a range of body types, body sizes and shapes in their asset library. So you can, in fact, sort of mix and match. There are certain limits to how far, again, you can push on those. Uh, and then um, the what the body does and how it performs is then simply a matter of the rigging. So you can perform deformations to the body in terms of how it moves because that's not controlled by MetaHuman Creator. But in terms of when does a, the, the, when does a, um, an ear or a nose long, no longer look like a nose, those are things, or, or a lip, there is the sort of normativizing function in terms of all of the basic facial features. Again, and this gets back to the AI sort of training model. If it can no longer recognize it uh, as this particular, um, uh, facial attribute, it becomes a, it becomes this sort of marginal case. It becomes uh, uh, no longer plausible. It becomes an edge case that cannot be, is not part of the the data set. So there are limits on to what extent you can. I, I don't want to say I use deform simply in the technical sense, but again, moving out of MetaHuman Creator into Maya, you can then start to change surface surface texture. You can change you know, clearly you can add scars to a face, you can deform a face, you can do all of these other bodily deformations that you might not be able to do in MetaHuman Creator. The, the issue for me is, is often that that becomes a second level of 
of, um, of competence, of literacy, to know how to take the asset from Unreal and move it into Maya, deform, do the deformations and the additional rigging here, and then export it back into. So those who have the utmost literacy and competence are those who can push the bodily transformation the furthest, whereas most of us are set with and using sort of the, these default uh, parameters. Uh, thank you. Um, Laurel says, thank you. And uh, we have a question from the um, one of the attendees who's not a panelist, um, Aguinaldo Mello. Um, at the beginning of your presentation, you presented the possibility of replacing human actors with AI metahumans. What would be a metahuman actor without the unpredictable narrative layer inherent in human personality? <laughs> An interesting question. Um, and at the moment, um, actually, Unreal uh, does not allow you to use its metahumans as intelligent agents, which is interesting. So they've drawn a line in the sand where um, you cannot use a metahuman as your sales force or your your uh, your AI agent on your university tour. So there there seems to be some sensitivity to that to to faking people or tricking people into thinking the metahuman. So it has to be used within a particular type of, I would say sort of fictional context where you understand the metahuman as a character and not an agent, not an intelligent agent. Um, um, I'm losing the thread on the question, but it, it's not. So Replica Studios with the automated sort of the, the AI sort of voice control that uses the human actor is subject to the same conditions since they're working with the metahuman character or still as a character within a story as opposed to an agent outside of a sort of a narrative construct. Um, I think the, the question about what an AI agent might do in a, uh, in a sort of erratic or unpredictable way is attached to the context that they're inserted. And the best that I can do in terms of like, the, there are multiple use cases, but if these characters are traditionally, because again, we're talking about a game company, if these characters are traditionally being used as non-playable characters or companion characters within a game narrative for the character to act too erratic within the game and be too unpredictable is going to lead to less than um, satisfactory gameplay for most traditional you know, AAA you know, games, which is where you'd see these characters. like the. The character has to make sense. It has to be beatable. It has to be understandable. Uh, it can't act erratically because that can result in a certain amount of displeasure in traditional AAA game titles. So I think the narrative context might determine to what extent a certain level of erratic behavior might be allowable, but also uh, acceptable depending upon that sort of uh, the context of its use. Um, I'd say the same about like a university tour. Like, you have an intelligent agent, like do you, like someone wants some continuity at work there? What would be the, the acceptable context in which the character might act more erratically? And we could, there, there are likely use cases where that could happen and that, that would be acceptable. Thank you. Um, uh, Shrushti, another question? Yeah, just I just occurred to me, and I'm wondering what your thinking was behind using the word colonize in association with mm -hmm. these companies. Are you building off of your existing theory, or like why not say control? Why colonize? That's a it's a heavy word. 
Um, I, I use it in the sense that, um, to me, colonizing suggests the way that they are um, acquiring assets. And I, I use the example of the metaverse because the fact that they may own the environment or the virtual stage and they can populate that stage with, with characters and then they can populate that stage with environmental assets and objects. For me, the, the notion of colonization suggests a certain um, pleasurable engagement or willful engagement with an Epic Games metaverse. Um, so it, it has a, a certain, I wouldn't say a certain complicit nature in terms of the agreement. If we want to engage in these spaces, if we want to have an avatar in the metaverse, we there's a cert, certain willful adoption of the platform. It's a very seductive adoption of the platform, and, and for me, that's the that's the power of the sort of the colonizing influence. It's not. It is there is an element of control, but there is an, a, this suggestion of a of a complicit agreement between those who want to participate in the tools with which they are able to participate and the ability to then think about um, if it becomes a branded metaverse construction that the limits of engagement are based on acquiring an Epic Games avatar to, to participate or a Fortnite avatar, which is owned by Epic. Like it, it seems more about your, your pathway to entry um, uh, is a matter of like, who owns and uh, control doesn't feel like the appropriate there is an element of control written in there but i think the notion that possibility gets written out in terms of entry points to me feels more like a colonizing force um i think we have a question from tomas yes thank you um so i'm i'm personally very interested in questions of governance around the metaverse and i think the questions around what 3d assets and what not what 3 assets are not uh, approved i think that's, that's deeply interested but i think there is something to acknowledge that the labor behind the the mm -hmm. 3d assets is going to be have to be done by someone um mm -hmm. so i i mean and that that is probably has to be a company like a real right like that's i mean this probably have to be engines uh I, I was recently playing around with uh, Decentraland, which is uh, which is a metaverse metaverse inspired application that works on blockchains. Uh, it's very interesting, but the engine that runs that it's an it's it's unreal. I mean, it's there's no meta humans involved because it's a it's a 3D space. But um, but um, but yeah. Um, so I wonder if if the question here is it's about like aesthetics, about the potential aesthetics of uh, of what meta humans can do, or if it's a question more about 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 governance of of uh, cyberspace, right? And and we can you know we can we can narrow it down on 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 the metaverse and say that it's a question about about the politics of what assets get validated and what assets don't get validated, right? Mm -hmm. I I would answer that by saying yes, I agree. I agree. It's it's about I think it's it's both. It is about data governance. Um, I would say, unfortunately, the data governance. Um, conditions often get radically simplified in terms of, they get typically centralized around issues of um, data security and data ethics. And when they typically, typically skirt the questions of representation and, and 
in in these other sort of in at least in the policy debates about ownership of data, because those those are easier questions. I think those are I would say easier questions. That might be the wrong word, but those are the traditional policy questions that we ask about information space, uh, and we ask less about what our assets are what assets are allowed and what they can do there. Typically, first and foremost, get reduced to questions of ownership and privacy. That's that's super and interesting. Not, and not what, go ahead. No, sir. It makes me uh, think if there's an analogy with this, is it this in content moderation, right? Like what you can say on the internet and what you can look like on the metaverse. There, there's, they seem to be the similar questions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm aware that um, is it Facebook just introduced uh, boundaries, um, um, and. Uh, Boundaries are, that's an interesting question about sort of, she, I, I haven't really thought about this. So I'm not gonna talk about it because it's gonna sound like an unthought. But that's an interesting question where data governance and governance of behavior meets sort of the question of around the representation of self, around the avatar. So it's an interesting moment where data governance and questions of ethics, and questions of bodies and representation start to come together, at least in that instance. We need to build a policy around behaviors, which is not a, which is now as a, as a sort of a visual, it takes a sort of, it takes a visual form, it becomes embodied, you know, in that, in that space. Great, thank you. Um, do we have any more questions? thoughts to share? I don't see anyone else from the um, off-screen space. Okay. Well, thank you so much, Eric. Um, it was very provocative, very interesting. Thanks for sharing. It was really great. Um, and thank you to everyone for coming today. And we'll see and, you next uh, week. Andrew, can you remind us what our talk is next week so we can do a little plug for it? Is it the podcaster? Yeah, let me just unmute for a second and pull up the actual. And before you say that, just let me say, I know we've got a lot of uh, students and grad students in your program. These are questions that I'm actively working through. I know you're actively working through similar parallel divergent questions. So I'm, I'm happy to hear what, you, what you're working on, respond to what you're working on, have you respond to what I'm like. These are, these ideas are, constantly in, in motion. So I'm happy to sort of share and talk more. And uh, you know how to, Heather can tell you how to reach me and happy to continue conversations about the works, your work, my work, however it helps. That is great. Thank you, Eric. So yep, we do have another event, uh, same time next Thursday, 5pm. Uh, it will also be just on Zoom. So not in person, just on Zoom. And that's with Jorge Carapayo, um, who is former gross editor at Radio Ambulante, which is Latin America's most popular documentary podcast. His talk is entitled, How to Use Audio Storytelling to Cultivate a Community and Keep It Engaged. Great, thank you. All right, well, I'll, I'll see the grad students there next week and hopefully some of our guests will be there as well. And thank you again to Eric and I'm gonna offer you some virtual applause. Thank <laughs> Thanks all. <laughs> Bye. Bye.